Good morning. It's a treat and privilege for me to be able to jump into the series that Ben has been leading us through in the book of 1 Samuel. So we're in chapter 17 this morning, and I invite you to turn there in your Bibles. If you don't have your own Bible, perhaps you'd like to use one of the Bibles in the little pocket in the pew in front of you. And if you have trouble finding 1 Samuel, you can find this passage on page 239 in that pew Bible. As soon as you turn there, you're going to see that it is a very familiar Bible story, perhaps one of the best-known and best-loved stories in all the Old Testament. Of course, there's a lot more there than just an exciting adventure story, and we want to pray that God would give us eyes to see that. It's also a fairly lengthy passage, so we're going to break it up. I'm going to read a good chunk at the beginning, but then we'll, we'll pause in the middle and pick it up later. So uh, if you have your place there, uh, follow along with me uh, at the beginning of chapter 17. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes-Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. 
And Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these 10 cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, 
and he approached the Philistine. And we'll pause there and pick it up later. But first, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, would you open our eyes to make us receptive to the message found here in your holy word? Would you use this passage to reveal to us the greatness of your Son, the Lord Jesus? Would you strengthen our faith and equip us to live as followers of him? And give us a deep and a rich joy as we learn further to consider all that he has accomplished for us. We pray it only in his holy and precious name. Amen. So the single best commentary that I was able to find on the story of David and Goliath comes from what you might think is a kind of surprising source. Uh, You may think uh, the obvious authors that I would go to first would be, you know, John Calvin or Kylan Dalich or any of the commentaries that Brian Walker has made available to us in the church libraries, in the church library. And yes, those are all excellent resources. We encourage you to use those, and I use them myself. But I have to say, the very best and the most helpful commentary that I found was not by any of those authors or by any widely recognized Old Testament scholar, uh, because it's actually not even in a book. It's in a song by a Christian rapper named Timothy Brindle. Brindle starts his song observing the way this song is often, observing uh, the way this story is often presented or applied in popular evangelical teaching. That is, as a moral, inspirational example. How to be brave, how to have faith to defeat the personal giants that are in your life. And Brindle is absolutely right about this. If you Google the phrase, facing your giants, you will find sermons and books and blog posts centered around this idea that Goliath represents the struggles or the fears that you're going through in your life And if you will follow the principles, if you'll apply the principles followed by David in his life, and especially in his battle with Goliath, then you will find the strength and courage you need to overcome that personal struggle. So here's how Brendel puts it at the very beginning of his song. And I want to ask you, try not to be too distracted by the thought of me trying to rap. I know that's a little bit (laughs) jarring to our sensibilities. I want you to focus... On these words. David and Goliath, a familiar Bible story, but most Sunday school lessons still apply it poorly. What's the way that most teachers and preachers apply this? David's our example when he defeated Goliath. And by faith in God, we can beat all our giants like our fears or anxieties that's inside us. So, what's the problem with that kind of approach? Well, one potential problem is how it can feed into the contemporary health and wealth gospel. If, if Goliath is made to represent any personal struggle that is looming in your life and your mind, and you take this passage as an example to rise up and kill that giant, you may be attempting to build a false confidence in a promise that God hasn't actually given you. If your Goliath is a financial crisis or a health crisis 
or a relationship crisis, it may not be God's plan and purpose in your life to remove that difficulty immediately and perhaps not to remove it any time in this present life. It may be God's plan to use that difficulty to build your faith and make you more like Christ. But there's an even bigger problem that goes more to the heart of the issue, and I want to put it in the form of a question that we should ask, not just about David and Goliath, but the entire narrative of the Old Testament. The question is this, what is this story ultimately about? Is it about you and me and the personal struggles of our daily lives? Or is it about something far bigger? So here's how Timothy Brendel asks that question and then answers it in his song. Is David and Goliath about facing your giants? Or about the son of David who is slaying the tyrant? Over Satan he triumphed when he suffered and bled. Our representative king was crushing his head. I believe Brendel is exactly right. He's discovered the real meaning of this story because he's just interpreting it it the way Jesus taught his disciples to understand the Old Testament. It's not that we're not supposed to see ourselves in this story because this story is very much related to us, but it's related to us through the central figure who is the hero of this story. And who is that? We might say it's David, but ultimately it points to Jesus, the son of David who stands in the place of his people and for their sake and for the glory of God's name triumphs over the enemy, the champion of the forces of darkness. That's really what we need to see as we read the story of David and Goliath. That's what we're going to try to do as we go through the passage this morning. So let's look at the text here. We don't know who the human author of this story is other than he's a prophet. He's inspired by the Holy Spirit to record the historical events of this narrative in a particular way. And notice he's very deliberate in the way he tells the story. He takes a lot of time to build up to the climax. With our chapter and verse divisions, it takes 40 verses to build up to the point where David actually confronts Goliath. You might say it's, it's kind of written like an ancient play. Certainly it is a masterfully written piece of literature. Besides the narrator to describe the events... We have a terrifying villain who is the antagonist. Uh, We have a central figure who is the hero or the protagonist. And we have various characters who contribute to the story primarily through their dialogue with David. So here's how the author takes us through these events. First, he sets the stage and introduces the conflict in the person of this fearsome warrior, this champion of the Philistines named Goliath. Notice he wants to spend a little time developing the geographical setting of this event. These are real historical places. The Philistines are gathered at Soko, which he makes a note of saying that belongs to Judah. So what are the Philistines doing there? Well, they're taking over, right? And this takes place in this big valley called the Valley of Elah, which runs east and west. And it's surrounded by various hills and mountains on each side, and it has a deep ravine in the, mi- in the middle, at least in modern times. And the way the author seems to describe it, at some point the opposing hills are close enough to one another to form a natural arena in the valley between the hills. The two armies are camped on the higher ground, 
and the lower ground in the middle becomes the perfect stage for what is going to happen next. What happens is the Philistines send out a representative, a champion, who issues a challenge of personal combat. Now, some commentaries discuss whether this kind of challenge was very common at this time and in this part of the world, and I think the question is actually unnecessary. It doesn't really matter if the Philistines or other nations commonly carried on combat through a single representative warrior this way. We should ask instead if there's anything in biblical history that gives us a precedent for this kind of thing. And the, an- the answer is yes. If we go back far enough, back to, the be- back to the beginning of human history in the Garden of Eden. What? Think about it for a moment. What is the responsibility that God gave to Adam? In Genesis 2.15, we're told the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Those two words, work and keep, can also be translated serve and guard. And it's the same two words that will be used later to describe the responsibility of the priests in the Mosaic Law. In places like Numbers 18, then it will get uh, referred to later in Ezekiel's vision of the temple in Ezekiel 44, where the priests are supposed to serve and guard the tabernacle and everything associated with it. Like the tabernacle, the Garden of Eden is the holy sanctuary of God. Its holiness must be preserved at all costs. That, in part, is the responsibility of Adam, the priestly king of the sanctuary. When there's a threat, he's supposed to stand in the way and defend God's honor. And you know what happens. An enemy approaches and does that very thing. He challenges God's honor. You can eat the fruit. You won't die. God just doesn't want you to be wise like him. Don't believe God's word. He's not worthy of your trust. And what is Adam supposed to do? He's supposed to answer the challenge and kill that serpent. But the snake is really sneaky. First, he deceives the woman. He uses the woman to convince the man. And Adam becomes a traitor who changes sides. He joins the, joins the enemy in the attack on God's honor, and he betrays the entire human race which he was supposed to represent. And from that point on, the human race is sold into slavery to serve the enemy. What we need is a do-over. Now, 1 Samuel 17 is not the do-over, but it's a picture of that do-over. I want us to notice the amount of detail the author uses to describe Goliath and his appearance. Starting in verse 4, most obvious is his fearsome size and his implied strength. If we convert these Hebrew measurements into modern English, he's over nine and a half feet tall. He has the most powerful, most advanced military technology. And there's a particular point that is missed in our English translation Verse 5 tells us he wears a helmet of bronze and he's armed with a coat of mail. And there's an extra word used there that is not used to describe Saul's coat of mail that you remember he will try to give David later in the chapter. The word used in verse 5 is actually a coat 
of scales. Scales. The word is not very common in the Old Testament, but one place it is used is Ezekiel 29, which is a prophecy against the king of Egypt where he is called a dragon with scales. In other words, these scales are associated with reptilian, serpent-like creatures like dragons. Goliath is not only huge and strong, the pieces of his armor are woven together like the scales of a dragon, and that adds to the picture of this fearsome enemy who has come to defy the armies of God and terrify God's people and bring them into bondage. So the people of Israel need a deliverer. They need a representative a champion of their own, one who will rescue them from slavery and disgrace by destroying their enemy. And the obvious question is, who's that representative going to be? And the immediate question that follows is, why not Saul? After all, he's the king, right? And that's why, a king, that's why the people asked for a king in the, in the first place, if you remember back in chapter 8. So he would go out before them and fight their battles. Not only that, but the situation calls for a champion who is strong and tall. Who might that be? Well, chapters 9 and 10 make a point of telling us Saul is taller than any of the people from the shoulders up. But if he stands out in his height, he does not stand out in his courage, does he? Because verse 11 tells us, when Saul and all Israel heard the word, these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. The previous chapter told us something really important about Saul. Immediately after the anointing of David, we are told the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And in the very next verse, we're told the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. For the rest of this book, we're going to see the contrast between David and Saul because David has the Holy Spirit and Saul does not. There was a time when the Spirit was present with Saul to give him victory over his enemies. Now the Spirit has departed and Saul is only left with the strength of the flesh. And that's not a lot of help when you're going against someone like Goliath. This exposes the futility of relying upon the flesh When the wise man boasts in his wisdom, there's always someone smarter than him to put him to shame, right? When the rich man boasts in his riches, there's always someone with more wealth to cut him down to size. And when the mighty man boasts in his might, there's always someone stronger to intimidate and humiliate and oppress and defeat him. Saul is the perfect picture of the man in the flesh. All he has to offer is what he received from Adam. Saul is not going to give the people of God their do-over. So at this point in the story, the author reintroduces David. David is the youngest son of Jesse from Bethlehem, which we know is about 12 miles away. For us, this is the second time that he's being introduced. Remember, we saw him back in chapter 16 where he is anointed by Samuel and he receives the Holy Spirit. And we're supposed to keep that picture in mind as we see him reintroduced in chapter 17 doing what? 
Don't miss the explanation the author gives why David came to the battlefield. Verses 17 and 18 show us Jesse, his father, giving instructions to his son. And verse 20 shows David doing as Jesse commanded. He points that out. The newly anointed, empowered representative of Israel comes to carry out the will of his father. And we should see there a picture of our King Jesus. So so David comes to his brothers in obedience to his father. It's the beginning of a subsection where the drama is developed and it's still building towards the climax by uh, these different dialogues that David has with various characters. What all the characters have in common is they don't think David can do this. Actually, they don't think anyone can do this. The men of Israel are talking about the great reward that will be given to anyone who can defeat Goliath. Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he's come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and will make his father's house free. That's free from taxes in Israel. But of course, none of them are stepping forward to take the challenge. Obviously, obviously they think it's impossible. And then you have David's brother, Eliab, who, by the way, has witnessed David's anointing back in chapter 16. But now he speaks harshly to David and accuses him of coming with proud, immature motives. Here's David. He's just doing what he's told, and he's getting blamed and scolded and disrespected. And this, too, is going to be repeated in the life of Jesus. The Gospel of John, chapter 7, tells us even his own brother's did not believe on him. And then finally, there's the help, the help that David gets from Saul. What are the first words out of Saul's mouth when he meets David? You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. You're too young. He's an experienced warrior. Don't be foolish. But David answers with confidence because he has seen God's power in the past, protecting him from lions and bears. So Saul gives in and thinks maybe possibly he can help out by giving David his armor. After all, that's the only way to fight a great champion, right? Get the best armor and the best weapons you can lay your hands on, and then you hope for the best. So David's not getting a lot of help from his own countrymen. Everyone around him is evaluating the situation according to the flesh, according to outward appearances. What Israel needs is a leader who has the spirit of the Lord resting upon him, whose delight is in the fear of the Lord, who doesn't judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. They need a leader who will judge the poor with righteousness, who will strike the earth by the rod of his mouth and will kill the wicked by the breath of his lips. You may recognize that description of Israel's anointed leader, the Messiah, the shoot that comes forth from the stump of Jesse, prophesied in Isaiah chapter 11. What the people of Israel are going to get at the end of those 40 days is not that leader, but they're going to get a picture of that leader. And that period of 40 days is not an accident, is it? For 40 days, this giant boasts in his gods and he struts his size 
his superior size and his strength, and he defies the armies of Israel. For 40 days, the people of God suffer the humiliation and disgrace of apparent defeat. But at the end of the 40 days, there's going to be a showdown. And a new representative of God's people is going to step forward to take the place of the old failed representative. So we're getting all these signs that point in one direction. The son of David will come to do battle with Satan. Satan will use everything that he has at his disposal to try to defeat him. He will tempt Jesus with earthly comforts and earthly glory. He will even use Jesus' own followers to try to talk him out of his mission. Remember Peter's words? Far be it from you, Lord. You can't die. This will never happen to you. And Jesus has to rebuke one of his closest disciples. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. David's conflict is a picture of the conflict of David's son. When he steps forward to battle Satan, part of that engagement is the experience of facing the discouragement and opposition of those closest to him because Satan has already blinded them. The representative of Israel is going to rescue his people in a way that's totally unexpected. We see this developed in verses 38 through 40. David can't use the armor of the failed king. He's not going to defeat Goliath by conventional military tactics. Now pretty soon everyone there is going to find out those stones he pulled from the the brook make some pretty lethal weapons, right? But the point is, it's not the ordinary way to fight a battle. David trusts that God will achieve victory for him in a way that's unexpected. And this, too, points to the coming victory of Jesus. Who ever heard of defeating sin and death and Satan by dying on a cross? It's unexpected. Now, when we get to the actual confrontation between David and Goliath, starting at the end of verse 40... It's interesting how the author spends more time giving us their speeches than he does describing the actual combat. And there's a reason for that. Both warriors are there to make a point. This is where they get to prove the validity or the futility of their boasts. And they each want to make it clear what they're boasting in. The passage has repeatedly emphasized the Philistine is there to defy the armies of Israel, which implies he is defying the God of Israel. Now we finally get to hear and see the answer to that defiance. They each step forward into this arena. I think they're projecting their voices because they want the watching armies to hear their words and know what's going on. So let's return to the passage where we quit reading earlier and let's read, picking up in verse 41. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? 
And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. So let's think about what David doesn't say, first of all. He doesn't say, you know, I've been practicing a lot with this sling. I think I've got a chance if I can just get in a lucky shot. That's not it at all. Why is he so confident and so zealous? He tells us why. He has a vision statement prepared for this battle, doesn't he? Goliath, your time of boasting and defying the armies of the living God is over. I am coming to take you down. And the reason is so that all the earth may know there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that Yahweh saves not with sword and spear. When you look at this picture, you're supposed to see a shadow of your King Jesus. When you hear those words, you're supposed to recognize a theme that runs through all of Scripture. The Lord saves. Yahweh, Yasha. Those Hebrew words become a name. In the Old Testament, we know it as Joshua. In the New Testament, it's Jesus. That's the meaning behind the name the, the angel gives to both to Joseph and Mary. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The message David proclaims on the battlefield is the same message of salvation by grace through faith consistently proclaimed throughout all of Scripture. Beginning with the curse announced to the serpent that he would be defeated by the seed of the woman, Continuing with the promise given to Abraham that his offspring would be used to take away the curse and bless all nations. It's the same message that Moses announced beside the Red Sea when he told the Israelites, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. The Lord will fight for you and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. It's the truth confessed by Jonah in the belly of the great fish when he prayed, salvation belongs to the Lord. It's the same message that Zechariah preached to Zerubbabel and the, exile, the returned exiles of Judah, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. The message is not stand strong and face your giants. At least that's not its first or primary focus. 
The message is your representative, your savior king is coming to kill the giant for you. And we who live on this side of the cross now see that as an accomplished reality. Jesus has taken the place of our failed representative, Adam, and he's given us our do-over. So let's read, let's continue reading how that picture unfolds in our passage today, picking up in verse 48. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'araim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. <clears throat> so after all this time that the author has spent developing the drama and building it up to the point of climax, the battle's over almost as soon as it starts, right? In spite of all the apparent superiority on the side of Goliath and the Philistines, the victory goes suddenly and totally in favor of David and the Israelites. And how does that happen? Well, it all hinges on one fateful moment. One crushing blow. And that's not an accident or a coincidence. The victory is accomplished by a blow to the enemy's head. The victory is accomplished by a blow to the enemy's head. Where have we seen that before? That was the promise back in Genesis 3.15. Spoken to the scaly serpent who had just brought the human race under the curse of bondage and death and disgrace. You're going to strike a blow against the heel of the offspring of the woman but he is going to strike a blow against your head. That veiled, obscure prophecy once given in the garden is now taking on a little more shape. It's coming a little more clearly into focus. The seed of the woman who is the offspring of Abraham, who is the son of David, is going to step forward in his role as the anointed representative of God's people. And in the strength and the name of the Lord, he is going to conquer and kill the great dreaded champion of God's enemies. And notice the author also spends a little time describing the effects or the results of this victory. You see, everything changed when they saw David holding Goliath's head, right? The armies of Israel rise with a shout 
When they see their representative's victory, they chase the Philistines all the way back to Gath. Remember, that's where Goliath is from. And Ekron, another major Philistine city. And then they return from the battle, from chasing the Philistines, and they plunder the camp and all the things left behind at the Philistines' camp. So if you've been looking for your place in the story, this is it right here. You are not the hero of this story, but once your champion has defeated the strong man and accomplished the victory, now that your Savior King has canceled the record of debt that was held against you and in so doing has disarmed rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, you share in that victory. You reap the rewards of a defeated enemy. The territory and possessions held by the Philistines in their oppression of Israel is once again enjoyed by the people of God in this great reversal. Because everyone on that battlefield understood the significance of what happened when David killed Goliath and cut off his head. The Philistines don't start looking for plan B. Well, he killed our first guy. Maybe we can find someone to take his place. David has proven what he set out to prove. There is a God in Israel who is mighty to save. Now that that has been demonstrated for everyone to see, the forces of Israel move forward and take possession of the fruits of their leader's victory. How ironic, how contradictory and unthinkable it would be for the armies of Israel to continue to cower in fear after David's victory. So here, I think, is how we're supposed to make the application. Our King Jesus has accomplished victory for us. It's true we have not yet seen our final victory. Remember Romans 16, verse 20 tells us, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. We have not yet experienced the final victory, but the final victory has been made certain by the decisive victory. The truth is, ever since the decisive victory accomplished in Christ's death and resurrection, Satan's forces have been running terrified in retreat. We often lose sight of that. We fear the wrath of the dragon, and we forget the reason he's so angry is because he knows his time is short. We grieve over stories of persecution of Christians around the world. We worry about the direction that our own country seems to be headed. We need to remember Christ is building his church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. We are not assured of an easy battle as we storm the gates of Hades, but we are assured the gates will fall. Satan's weapons, which according to the New Testament letters are unbelief and the fear of death, will ultimately prove powerless before the power of Christ and his kingdom. Maybe you are wrestling with unbelief this morning. Maybe you are experiencing the fear that comes from walking through the valley of the shadow of death. The answer for your fear and the remedy for your unbelief is to look at your representative king. The son of David has defeated your great enemy and now rules over his kingdom with grace and peace. Find your peace and your confidence in the victory that Jesus has accomplished for you.
Dale's going to come lead us in the Lord's Supper.